Well, I am. Uh, I'm so glad uh, to be here uh, with you guys. This is this is great. I love coming to the Waterford campus. I love worshiping with you, and I'm so glad that I get to preach uh, for you this morning. Well, like Sam said, we're in this series of the vine, where we're looking at the different aspects of the fruit of the spirit. And today we're going to look at peace. We're going to look at how we find peace. And there's the story in the last battle. It's the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, where Lucy asks Aslan, the lion, who represents Christ, who represents the Lion of Judah, she asks Aslan to help out some dwarfs. Now, at this point in the story, Narnia has been made new. And so Narnia represents heaven. But you see, there's these dwarfs who still think they're back on earth in a stable. They refuse to see the beauty of Narnia. And so Lucy says to Aslan, Aslan, can you, can you help out these poor dwarfs? And Aslan replies, dearest Lucy, I will show you both what I can and cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and gave a long growl, low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. They use some kind of machine. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. They won't make us play the fool. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarfs' knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, Another said he got a bit of an old turnip, and the third said he found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on to quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison. And so afraid of being taken in, they cannot be taken out. Do you ever live like that? So afraid that you're going to be made a fool, so afraid that you're going to be taken in, so afraid that you're going to believe something that turns out not to be true, that you cannot be taken out. See, the dwarves were in a totally unnecessary prison. They were in a prison of their own making. They were a prison of their own mind, a prison that Aslan never intended for them to be in. 
And some of us, although we know that we've been freed because of Christ's work, in John, 3, in John 8, 36, Jesus even says, If I set you free, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. But some of us, even though we know that, we still choose to live in a prison. A prison of our own mind, a prison of our own making, a prison that Jesus never intended for us to be in. And those of us who struggle with worry and anxiety know this prison well. We know the claustrophobic feeling of being trapped within our own minds. And even if we've committed Philippians 4, 6 to memory, which you heard Matt read at the beginning of the service, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Even if we have that memorized, we find ourselves trapped in an endless loop of unhelpful or hurtful thoughts. We lack peace of mind. Now, I need to say that I do believe that there's a chemical aspect to anxiety. And for some people, medicine is what is needed. And so I don't, I don't want to over-spiritualize worry and anxiety in a way that is unhelpful for those of you who suffer from a physiological condition. But what I am wanting to talk about is the kind of run-of-the-mill, everyone struggles with kind of worry and anxiety. And we all have it. And I think that it's, it's a prison of our own making. So how, how do we get out? What's the cure to our worry and anxiety? Well, we just walk out. We walk out of the prison. The door's not locked. See, the cure to our worry and our, and our anxiety is our freedom. Peace is the result of freedom, and our experiencing peace of mind is the result of our understanding that freedom. Now, the world will tell us that the way you and I, that we get peace, that, that we get a sense of calmness, is just by expelling negative thoughts. Like, just clear your mind. Like, don't, don't think about such things. Like, the power of positive thinking. Learn to control your feelings. Serenity now. Any of y'all seen that Seinfeld where Kramer keeps going around, serenity now, serenity now. No matter what's going on, that, that's supposed to work. Just say that. And there's one character in the, in the episode that says, serenity now sanity tomorrow. And he actually gets it right. See, the problem with just trying to expel negative thoughts is that it's not realistic and it's kind of dumb. Because by doing that, what you're achieving is not real peace, only the illusion of peace. If you achieve peace of mind by not facing the facts, by not looking at things and facing reality, that's not real peace. You're still in a prison of your own mind. It's like the movie... Um, the Matrix. Remember the movie The Matrix came out in the late 90s with Keanu Reeves? And Keanu Reeves is just this normal guy living a normal life. His name's Neo. When all of a sudden he begins to see things, begins to notice things that make him think that the reality that he has thought was real all along might not indeed be real. And so Morpheus comes to him, and Morpheus is in this black trench coat, and uh, Lawrence Fishburne plays Morpheus, and he comes to Neo and he says, I've got two different pills for you. I've got a red pill and a blue pill. And he offers them to him. He says, you take the blue pill and the story ends. You wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe. But you take the red pill and you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. So you take the blue pill and you don't have to deal with reality. You can, you can go on living life any way you choose, but you take the red pill and you'll see things as they really are. 
Which would you choose? Or which do you choose? I think a lot of us would say, well, we want the red pill. We want to face reality. We want to to face whatever is true. But on a daily basis, I think it's a lot easier to take the blue pill. Because when we take the blue pill, we don't have to worry about what we'll discover about ourselves or about the world around us or even about God. But the problem with taking the blue pill, the problem with serenity now, the problem with trying to expel negative thoughts is it won't work for long. It might work for a little while, but eventually worry and anxiety will seep back in. Because even in the best crafted illusions, there are hints of reality. Now, if you're here and you aren't a Christian, what I'm going to be talking about is for you uh, as well, but it is only available through Jesus. There's no way around it. There's no way around him. And so my prayer for you today is that you would fall in love with Jesus because what Jesus has to offer is what you're looking for. It's what we're all looking for. We're all seeking peace. Just ask Miss America, right? Every answer, peace. That's what we want. H.G. Wells um, said after he had left his Christian upbringing to, to kind of soak his mind in Darwinian atheism, he said, here I am at 65 still seeking peace. You and I, like that is what we're doing. We are constantly seeking peace. But where H.G. Wells and Miss America might have missed it is that in seeking peace, That's not how we get to peace. The search for peace does not lead us to peace because peace is the result of our freedom. You'll never find peace without first being freed. So this morning, we're just going to look at one verse, which we hardly ever do. We hardly ever just focus in on one verse. But I want us to focus in on this one verse because in this verse, I believe we see where our peace comes from. So let's look together at Isaiah 53. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is God's word. Peace is the result of our freedom, and our experiencing peace of mind is the result of our understanding that freedom. These words written by Isaiah were written hundreds of years before Christ would be born. But in them, they contain the key to understanding our freedom. Our freedom is through Jesus. And it's not the kind of freedom that comes from just expelling negative thoughts, but it's the kind of freedom that comes by facing reality, by examining all the evidence, by looking at the facts and realizing that we're not the butt of a joke of some cosmic sadist. A lot of us walk around with guilt. Why? Because we do bad stuff. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. We all do bad stuff sometimes. And if it's undealt with, if that guilt is undealt with, it causes us to walk around with worry and anxiety. Worry and anxiety are not always the result of guilt, but guilt always produces them. Let me say that again just to make sure it's clear. Worry and anxiety are not always the result of guilt, but guilt always produces them. Some of us walk around uh, with guilt, uh, but in reality, it's shame. Some of us walk around with a lot of shame. Now, shame and guilt are different. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. 
And a few years ago, it was really the trend, and I think this trend is going away, although maybe it's not, but it was a trend like if you wanted to be a, a young, cool, hip, relevant pastor who reached young people, you would never say the word sin. You would always say, like, not God's best for you or talk about the brokenness of, of the world, um, but you would just avoid the word sin. And when I was a youth pastor, I, I tried that. I tried that, but I found that it, it doesn't work. And it's not that those other phrases are bad because I say them from time to time because they can be helpful, but they can also be a way of trying to expel negative thoughts, of not facing the reality. And the only way that you and I have peace is when we face the reality of our sin. And I remember, um, I, I remember when this moment became clear to me. I was, I was a youth pastor, and I was working with uh, a young man who for many years had just, uh, just wrecked his life and his family's life. He had been on drugs since he was 11. He had done all kinds of things that just wreaked havoc for his family. And, and he was really trying to work through some stuff. And he was being very courageous in facing his sin. And he got to the point where he really wanted to try to make amends with his family. And so he asked me if I would go with him to meet with his dad. So I did, and, uh, and he, he asked his dad to forgive him, and his dad responded, there's nothing to forgive. But there was. And Justin knew it, even though that's not his name, but I'll call him Justin. Justin knew it, and I knew it. And I remember looking at Justin's face and seeing that, that what his father said to him did not bring him any relief. Because, you see, Justin didn't need to hear his father say, there's nothing to forgive. He needed to hear his father say, you are forgiven. And so I jumped in and I said, no, 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 there is stuff that needs to be forgiven. And the dad kept insisting there was nothing to forgive. Now, you might think the dad's just being really gracious, but that he wasn't. Grace always calls sin, sin. Now, the dad could have said that because he had already forgiven him. Or he could have said that because he didn't expect anything more from his son, that he just accepted that this is the way his son was. And that was really where the father was at. See, by insisting that there was nothing that Justin needed to be forgiven for, he left Justin feeling like there was something intrinsically wrong with him. If there's nothing that needs to be forgiven, and I've done all these bad, evil things, those bad, evil things must be inseparable from who I am. Therefore, I must be junk. So you don't forgive a dog who attacks a person unprovoked. You put the dog to sleep. You don't hold someone with a mental illness to the same standard as other people because they're not thinking in their right minds. So by saying there is nothing to forgive, Justin heard his dad say, I didn't expect anything more from you. That's just who you are. What Justin needed to hear from his dad was that he was a sinner, created in the image of God, and he had been choosing to live a life that was less than the life God had for him. He needed to hear his dad tell him how much he had hurt him, how much he had hurt the family, but that he would fight for him to see who God had in mind when he thought Justin up. And that he would walk alongside him through that process of choosing to live in that reality. Justin now is a young adult, and he's in and out of rehab all the time, and it makes me so angry because what I see in Justin is a man who is seeking peace, but he's still not free. 
his father had the opportunity to set him free. See, peace starts with realizing we're sinners and then comes to fruition with our understanding of our freedom. So how do we, how do we get to that place of freedom? So first we have to distinguish between shame and guilt. Again, guilt is I've done something bad. Shame is I am something bad. So once we get to, to distinguishing those and we get to guilt, what do we do with that? Well, there's two types of guilt. There's a healthy guilt and an unhealthy guilt. And healthy guilt usually kind of follows the same process. It's a five-step process. Step one, recognition. Realizing that you've done something wrong. Step two, feeling convicted. Conviction. Step three, punishment. Step four, freedom. Step five, peace. Now, if you have children, like this is really important to kind of understand this process in the training of our kids. It's, under, it's, it's, it's important for them to understand this process as well. Let me go through the steps again. Step one, recognition, realizing you did something bad. Step two, conviction, feeling bad for what you did. Step three, punishment. Step four, freedom. Step five, peace. Unhealthy guilt is step two and step three, conviction and punishment. You feel convicted and you take on punishment. But there's no step one, there's no recognition of something you've done wrong, and there's no step four or five, freedom and peace. See, unhealthy guilt is untrue because there was never something done that needed to bring about feelings of true conviction. Some of you walk around with unhealthy guilt. You feel guilty all the time, but you don't know why. You just kind of, I just feel guilty. And maybe it's because you, you know, you, you relaxed. You feel guilty because you could have been doing more stuff. Or maybe you went out and did something fun and you, and you feel guilty about that. Or maybe uh, you walk around feeling like there's a bunch of things you can fix that are really outside of your control. And the fact that they haven't been fixed means you feel guilty. That's unhealthy guilt. You are living in a prison of your own making, and you cannot experience peace of mind. This often happens uh, with kids whose parents get divorced. I had an eight-year-old boy in my office a couple weeks ago whose parents got a divorce, and, and his mom brought him in to me because he just cried all the time. He just, like, at the drop of a hat, he would just start crying. And, and as we were talking, he said, he said to me, I think that if me and my brother didn't fight as much, my parents would have stayed together. Now, some of you have parents who got divorced. And even though you're an adult now, and even though you know better, there are days that you still feel like that eight-year-old. That's unhealthy guilt. It's not your fault. It's not true. See, without step one, without recognizing something specific that you did that was wrong, you can get trapped into an endless loop between feeling bad, feeling conviction, and punishment. Punishment, feeling guilty. Guilty, feeling punishment. There's no relief. There's no freedom in that. And without freedom, you cannot find peace. And I think some of the reason we get stuck here uh, in dealing with unhealthy guilt is because even though we might have unhealthy guilt, we all have healthy guilt that needs to be faced. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So even if we might be walking around with guilt that is untrue, all of us have guilt that is true. met with a woman uh, in her late 30s who struggles with self-harm. And, and I don't get that. 
I hate pain. I have such a low pain threshold. Um, if I were the one having the babies, we would not be having five babies. Like we would have been done after one, right? And I told the woman this, and and she looked at and I said, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I can, I can understand kind of numbing yourself and binging on Netflix, but I, I cannot understand inflicting pain. And she said to me, she said, I, I'm not trying to numb myself. I'm already numb. I hurt myself because I don't know what to do with my guilt. What do you do with your guilt? When those worrisome and anxious thoughts that are the result of a guilty conscience into your mind, what's your response? What do you do? What do you do with that guilt? And how does dealing with healthy guilt lead us to a freedom that brings about a peace that doesn't make any sense? Andrew, I've known since he was in seventh grade, and Andrew is graduating from FSU this spring, um, with some kind of finance degree, and he's got some big wig job in Atlanta where he's going to crush it. But I really believe Andrew's going to end up being uh, a pastor one day. But Andrew and I were together at a Christian conference, and it was one of those, you know, in an arena conferences where thousands of people, and you know, during worship they had the laser light show and the and the fog machines, just so that in case the Holy Spirit shows up, you can make out his outline. And so, so we're in this kind of experience where, where you're kind of looking around, and you're like, is this is this it? But but yes, it is. That's what it is. And so we're in this worship um, experience, and and we're singing a Chris Tomlin song, and I know it's a Chris Tomlin song because Chris Tomlin was singing it um, in his unnecessary scarf. Um, and so Chris Tomlin is singing, and, um, and, uh, and I look over, and Andrew is laying prostrate on the ground. And I think, oh no, Andrew's dead. And um, because at the time, we were both Presbyterian, and Presbyterians don't do that in worship. And, and so I'm looking at Andrew, and I'm like, what? What in the world has happened to Andrew? And so the, the, the evening festivities end, and, and I'm with Andrew, and I'm asking him, what in the world was going on during that Chris Tomlin song? And Andrew started telling me how much he loved hearing and, and talking about the gospel, how he loved uh, telling people the gospel. He loved telling people that Jesus came and lived the life that you and I were supposed to live and then died the death that you and I deserved. Um, in our place. He loved watching people get that. But he said, as, as we were worshiping, and, as, and, and this is no joke, we were like repeating the same chorus and bridge back and forth, back and forth. And it had been like four or five times. And, and he said, during that time, he just started praying. And he said, I realized as I was praying that I loved hearing the gospel and telling the gospel to other people, but I don't think I'd ever accepted it for myself. And he said it this way. He said, I, as I was praying, I pictured Jesus with all these backpacks, these backpacks full of people's sin. And he said, Zach, it was, it was amazing to see him carrying all those backpacks. It was beautiful. And he said, but I was holding on to mine. And, and I thought, I just, I'll, just keep on, I'll just keep holding on to mine because, because he's already got enough on him. I don't want to burden him anymore with my stuff. So I'll just hold on to my backpack. And he said, as I was praying, I sensed Jesus say to me, but Andrew, I want your backpack. You can give it to me. 
I can handle it. I promise. And Andrew said, as soon as he gave away his backpack, he said, I fell to the ground. And I, I, don't, I can't explain it. I just did. And he said, and once I was down there, I didn't want to get up. He said, Zach, I cannot describe to you the relief that I felt, the peace that I felt for the first time. And what's amazing is, as Andrew was describing this encounter, it is so similar to the encounter in the book Pilgrim's Progress, which was written in the 1600s when the main character becomes a Christian. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with peace be unto you. The peace that comes from the Spirit. The peace that's being described in the fruit of the Spirit is a peace that faces the facts. It doesn't avoid reality. It doesn't expel negative thoughts. It looks at them head on. It stands at the foot of the cross and sees the brutal reality. See, the peace that comes, that results in our freedom, comes from realizing the bad we've done, feeling convicted, and punishment. Andrew knew the gospel. He would tell anyone about it. He would tell his coaches, his friends he loved, telling the gospel. But it wasn't until Andrew acknowledged the punishment, when he saw the punishment taking place, that he felt free. But he didn't take the punishment. He let go of his bag. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Peace is the result of our freedom. And our experiencing peace of mind is the result of our understanding that freedom. And our freedom comes because of the punishment of Jesus. We can't be freed without Jesus being punished. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So have you given away your backpack? Maybe you've known the gospel for a long time, but you, still, you, don't, you just don't want to put that on Jesus. Listen, you can't be free without punishment. So either you can keep carrying the punishment yourself, or you can see it being carried by another. And what happens when you give away your backpack? What happens is you get peace with God, which leads to the peace of God, a peace that doesn't make any sense, a peace that passes understanding. Horatio Spalford was an American lawyer who lost all of his worldly possessions in the Great Fire in Chicago in 1871. Two years later, he sent his wife, Anna, and their four little girls um, across the ocean to England for a vacation. Well, while they were making that journey across the sea, the two ships ran into each other 
and the ships began to sink. And Anna grabbed the four little girls together and they prayed. But as soon as the ship went underwater, they were scattered. All four girls drowned. The mom survived. She was found unconscious by another ship and, and taken to England. And, and when she recovered enough, she, she cabled back to her husband two words, saved alone. So Horatio Spofford makes the journey from America to England to go pick his wife up to bring her home. And as he's crossing that same sea that took his daughters, he began to write a hymn. And these are the words he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now that makes sense. That makes sense that he would write those words. But then he goes on to write, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Now what does that have to do with his four daughters who are dead? What in the world does that have to do with finding peace in the midst of tragedy? Some of you walk into this place facing tremendous suffering. Maybe you're going through things that you just never thought you would go through. How in the world does, does Jesus being punished for your sin in your place, how does that help anything? It helps everything. Think about it. What happens when you and I encounter suffering or trials? What happens? What, what, what do we think? A lot of us the thought creeps into our mind, maybe I'm being punished. Maybe God's so angry at me. No. Look at the cross. God got as angry as he will ever get at your sin 2,000 years ago. So what you are experiencing now through trials and suffering is not the result of an angry God. Or maybe... What takes away your peace, what, what gives you thoughts of worry and anxiety is the thought, well, maybe God just doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't care that I'm going through this. No. Look at the cross. Look what he bore for us. If you are suffering, look and see your sin being nailed to the cross. You do not have a God who is punishing you and you do not have a God who doesn't care. We have a God who on the cross lost all peace so that you and I could have peace in all. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Peace with God leads to the peace of God, which makes no sense. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that that is true that no matter what we face, Jesus, if you are our Savior, we know that we are not being punished, that you bore the punishment for our sins. We can say, like Horatio Spofford, my sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. It's all nailed to the cross. 
that there is nothing left for us to carry. And Father, I pray if there are those in this room who have never handed their backpack, maybe they've been doing the church thing and the religious thing, but they've held on to their backpack because they don't want to burden you. Jesus, would you make it clear to them that you can handle it? That you want to set them free? Father, I thank you that in you we can have a peace that the world doesn't understand. That we don't have to just expel negative thoughts, but that we can face reality and say, it is well. I have peace with the maker of the universe. Make us people of that kind of peace.